1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe All Show podcast today on the pod. We continue with our series, The Next Million, as we look at how we move goods in our city with another million residents living here, from automation to self-driving trucks to our road and bridge network. How efficient will it be for truck drivers to get around Metro Vancouver? Plus, with a provincial election one year away from today, we look at the political landscape as the NDP leads, the conservative surge, and BC United languishes. Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman join me. And we look at the City of Vancouver's appeal to the province for nearly $4 million so they can provide public toilets 24-7 in the downtown east side. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Uh, Let's look at the issue of homelessness. And now every corner of Metro Vancouver deals with this issue. It's not just a Vancouver or Surrey issue. How do you deal with it? Well, one Richmond City Councillor is advocating for secure care when it comes to dealing with those dealing with acute drug addiction, critical mental mental illnesses, and on top of that, of course, homelessness. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Cash Eat is a former West Vancouver Police Chief, former BC Solicitor General, and presently is a Richmond City Councillor. Cash, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jazz. Good afternoon. So I think for the sake of this conversation, when you say secure care, explain to our audience, what does secure care mean?
2: That is a compassionate facility where we can take people out of their misery or suffering from being homeless on our streets due to their uh, drug addiction or their mental health issue that they're facing right now. It is more or less a treatment center where they actually will be housed. They will not be able to leave. They'll put through, be put through a series of treatment. Now, it has to be separate, in my opinion, uh, the two of them, one for the uh, acute uh, drug-addicted person and others for those suffering from some mental health issues such as schizophrenia or something of that nature. This, These are the bulk of people that make uh, the disorder on our public spaces at this particular time. And it was a significant driving factor of why our homeless rates went up by 91% in the city of Richmond. So I'm asking uh, our council to take a formal position on this.
1: And so let's just say they do take that formal position. You've, uh, it's been introduced uh, in the city of Richmond. Uh, the This would require... Help funding organization by the provincial government, right?
2: Absolutely. It's under their uh, mandate for them to deal with these types of issues. Uh, certainly, it's not for local governments. Uh, they can be part of the driving factor uh, to bring these into their municipalities or into any particular region. And I think we need more support uh, from the other local governments in order for this to take place. But it's certainly under the purview of the provincial government, because that is their responsibility with our current legislation.
1: So I want to get this straight. When you say they should be housed and held, there would be pick up, arrested, and moved, or not? maybe arrested may not be the word, but at least picked up and then moved to these facilities but kept there, right?
2: Absolutely. There would be a, a set of criteria with, in fact, uh, they would have to meet, and I'm certain that uh, several of the people that, again, are causing havoc were just at the one-year anniversary of Constable Yang's Uh, killing in Central Park where the individual had schizophrenia, mental health issues. Uh, We had recent incidents in Chinatown and Vancouver. We have these ongoing on a regular basis. Just look at some of the headlines with respect to people that are committing some of the petty crimes out there, such as the shoplifting. These are people that are not doing it for their own volition. These are people that have these particular issues, and we need to make sure that we have treatment centers for them that are humane, not inhumane like the former river that uh, we kept these people in within the province of British Columbia. But
1: that is what you're, I mean, okay, and I agree with you that Riverview may not, uh, the way they've handled things in the past and the way we did things in the past may not be the right way, but this is a different type of Riverview at the end of the day, is it not, when you're security, security holding people and they may not want to be there, so you're going to hold them there. To a certain degree, it's a, a new, hopefully more humane way, although people would disagree with holding people, but it, it is it is still similar to a review, is it not?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, that's why I'm advocating for the treatment to be uh, part and parcel with the secure care for these individuals. When you talk to people with a severe drug addiction that they have right now, they don't want to be in that situation. Their situation is such that they have a sickness and they need to get that next fix in order for them to survive. So they're chasing that particular high. They don't want that uh, set of circumstances that they're in. I'm sure that's similar with people that have the mental health issues, but they don't realize what their circumstances are.
1: Do you think this type of um, forced treatment Actually, I mean, do studies show that there is improved outcomes in this? Some would argue that look, uh, you, you force treatment on people, uh, it, it can lead to higher levels of mental duress, um, and, and those types of things, and perhaps even higher rates of le- relapse. You're telling me if you force somebody into treatment, there actually is it, it, there's that we are actually going to see outcomes that would that we that would help these people at the end of the day and help society.
2: Well, let me tell you, right at the outset, is there be a criteria that the individual would have to meet in order for them to get in there. We're not going to take anyone that's smoking marijuana and has a habitual uh, addiction or uh, whatever uh, continual use of it. We're taking the people that have those
3: acute
2: drug abuse ones, the ones that are overdosing on a continual basis that we're having to bring back through our Narcan and through our other mm-hmm. response to this particular issue. And when we talk about people that have that severe mental illness, where in fact, maybe, Jazz, they're going to have to be in a humane treatment center for the rest of their lives. They, they should not be out in our public spaces, because that's where we lose faith in our systems, in mm-hmm. our politicians, and the way we handle people in such a inhumane way of sleeping on the streets
1: Um, are there any jurisdictions that actually do this
2: yes there are there are several across uh, north america that actually uh, do this. There are several that are looking at it, and I think we have to start to experiment because, Jazz, what we have right now is not working. Continually, we're advised of that, of the lack of success in dealing with our urban decay as a result of people's mental health as a result of their drug addiction.
1: Now, I I would agree, as I said from the outset, that Riverview may, may have been inhumane, But the idea of putting people into, as you describe it, secure care is a different type of Riverview and I get lots of calls on this show. Why did we ever shut down Riverview? Um, Do you think that was a mistake at the end of the day?
2: I don't necessarily think it was a mistake. I had visited that several times, uh, uh, arresting people under the Mental Health Act and delivering them to that particular facility. I thought uh, it, it needed to be done. But what happened, Jazz, when the Socrates government actually did that and then the other governments just confirmed that, is that most of the resources that were utilized in that facility were supposed to go to the community where these people were going to be. They released these people from these institutions but did not send the treatment or the care to the local municipalities as a result it was downloaded on local governments to deal with it and as a result it was defaulted to the police to actually deal with it.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Now Richmond generally when you think of Richmond uh, middle class suburb uh, not much goes on in a good way and I mean that it's a safe and secure community and even when I was MLA there uh, there was some homelessness challenge on the sort of uh, Richmond-New Westminster border in the Hamilton area. Give me a sense of what it's been like the last couple of years in Richmond.
2: The dramatic increase of 91% has certainly led to uh, urban decay around the central business uh, district of Richmond, number three road. We had the tragedy under the Oaks Creek Bridge where someone uh, burned to death in the tent. We have our overdose crisis taking place here in Richmond, certainly not the frequency of Vancouver. All of those issues are taking place in every municipality around uh, uh, Metro Vancouver and elsewhere in British Columbia. And I think we've got to start to pay attention to this because it's just going to amplify and perpetuate going forward, and we're going to have these lack of responses. And, and if you notice what is going on right now, everyone's deferring to the criminal justice system to uh, deal with this, and they're frustrated. Mm-hmm. But we cannot uh, count on the costly criminal justice system. Number one, it's a, it's a failure to deal with people with this type of illness that they have. Uh, number two, it is a very costly process in order for us to house these people without any treatment uh, which is required for their problem
1: we are speaking to Cash Heade. He's Richmond City Councillor, former BC Solicitor General. He is advocating for secure care when it comes to dealing with acute drug addiction and critical mental illness uh, and with the homelessness population. homelessness population in Richmond has gone up by 91%. That's huge. Uh, But, you know, you could probably say the same thing in Vancouver, Surrey, and many other municipalities around Metro Vancouver and throughout British Columbia. It is a huge challenge. Uh, And as uh, Mr. Heade said, that in this case, with the secure care, you would have to take a, uh, you know, persistent small minority that are dealing with these issues but take them out house them and hold them and get them help I want to hear from you in regards to what you think of secure care 604-280-9898 let's go to the open line let's go to kevin in vancouver hi kevin
4: hi thanks for taking my call um i think the current system of you know uh giving somebody a booklet and saying here read this and uh good luck um and releasing them back out into public that that doesn't fix anything um Having somebody work with the person uh, day in, day out until they can actually handle whatever it is that they're, they're going through mm-hmm. uh, and then slowly releasing people back into the public, that's uh, a more caring way of doing it than, than our current system. And if people have heart disease, if they've got a broken leg, we've got treatments for that. This may be part of that uh, treatment regime for someone who, who is unable to function in society. They want to. Uh, they want to. They don't want to go through this mess. Nobody yeah. does,
5: um, but they don't have the tools.
1: Kevin, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Uh, let's go to Matthew in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Matthew. Matthew.
5: Yes. Hello.
6: Go ahead.
1: Hi. What's right, on your yeah, mind?
6: Um, I, I would like to. I agree with your guest, because on the uh, holding them uh, because the, the current system is hasn't been working for as long as they implemented it and actually i have is he from richmond i actually know of a perfect spot where they can house these people in richmond there's a street called bridgeport Ridge- bridgeport road in richmond and it's all full of all these um old um warehouses slumlord warehouses full of garbage and and stolen material, they could just revamp all those warehouses and put them in there.
1: Matthew, thank you for your call. I do appreciate it. Uh, Cash, uh, uh, in regards to just, you were saying, other communities have done this, uh, are there specific names or names of cities you could give us that, that have sort of looked at this or are considering looking at this?
2: Well, most of it's under a provincial responsibility, so it's not the city alone that does it. And I know Alberta is seriously looking at it, Mm -hmm. and I know there's uh, uh, Ontario's looking at it. So many of the provinces are, and uh, there's uh, states that have, and some of the European communities have actually looked at this. And, you know, the goal of this, Jazz, is to transition these people out of their homeless. due to their drug addiction or mental health issues. So we've got to keep that in the back of my mind. It's just not to incapacitate mm-hmm. them and get them out of sight, out of mind. The goal is to transition them uh, in some humane way to uh, living a quasi-regular uh, societal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's
1: go to uh, Grant in Vancouver. Hi, Grant.
2: Hi. Thanks for taking my call.
4: I, I just want to uh, voice some support for uh, what uh, Mr. he is uh, proposing. i uh, I, I think our, our safe supply harm reduction uh, uh, approach is only half the battle and, and it seems that uh, you know we, we often cite models like uh, uh, Portugal I, I think you know as far as offering a, a safer supply of of, uh, uh, of, of drug uh, but uh, and I think it was it was tested recently in, in Portland the to, to really negative impact uh, it seems like early on in our pilot uh, approach here it seems like again we're, we're seeing negative approaches. I think the enforcement, uh, treatment, and uh, intervention uh, is a really important uh, component uh, for to be successful. Grant, I, I thank like
1: you. To- Grant, thank you for your call. Sorry I have to cut you off there. Your signal isn't very good. I appreciate your comments. Let's go
2: to uh, George uh, in Nanaimo. Hi, George. Hi, guys. Um, I don't know how any sane, rational person could possibly argue against it. Jazz, you're driving me crazy, making all these limp excuses for these people the harm they've caused the rest of society far outweighs any consideration that we owe them in terms of taking care of them they need to be removed we're tired of the theft we're tired of the garbage Mm -hmm. we're tired of the harm clearly the weak approach that we've been doing with harm reduction is a 100 percent failure it's wrong stupid-headed thinking and if we don't have enough proof by now I don't know what it's going to
1: take. George, thank you for your call. appreciate it. Uh, Although I'm not sure why you took it out on me, but sure, that's (laughs) fine. Cash, uh, a final question in regards to decriminalization. Where do you stand on this issue in regards to what you're saying in secure care? Is there still room for decriminalization or do you think we walk away from that?
2: Well, we've had, and as you know from your years of reporting and uh, you and I doing several stories together, we've had de facto decriminalization Mm -hmm. in place for about the last two or three decades. And in fact, we still suffer from some of the problems with respect to it. It's a half-baked idea. It's one piece of the puzzle. And uh, certainly that is part of what we need. But you bring up a very important thing on decrim. And I just want to take a minute to talk about this. Is the decrim changes that the provincial government has introduced. Matter of fact, it shows that local governments can influence change at the provincial level. And so I take what has happened there in the decrim argument and the changes, the amendments made by the province to to what we're doing here local governments are the closest to the people in the community they can influence change so decrim uh, you know again there's uh, so much out there on that you'll never find uh, people in agreement with
1: mm-hmm. it no absolutely and i've always felt that you know if you're going to do decrim you better do the enforcement and treatment side really well yes. uh, if you don't then you're, the the program itself on its own is is destined for failure when it comes to the public's view and perception uh, of what is success that's for sure cash thank you so much for your time look forward to catching up with you soon and want to know how uh, this particular uh, uh, issue that you're advocating for does in regards to committee stage and perhaps gets to council and, and hopefully we'll start uh, many other uh, municipalities start talking about this issue thank you for your time today
2: thanks jazz
5: hear that believe it or not summer is just around the corner
1: We're joining me now. Is our Jerry Mayor Judson. Hello. Hello, hello. You know, usually we talk about issues and I, I always have an opinion on things, but yes. I can tell you on this issue. <laughs> and I want to say it, it's. And you told me the title, Maximizing, uh, is it hormone? Your yeah, hormone. your
8: hormone cycle as a woman in the workplace. Yeah,
1: I know nothing about that. And <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, this is where I talk less and listen more.
8: <laughs> and I, I love mean. that. I love that attitude in a man. So, kind of what inspired me is earlier this week, a report came out uh, for Canada specifically that a lack of menopause support in Canada. Canada. Canada costs employers $237 million annually in lost productivity and it costs working women themselves $3.3 billion in terms of like reduced hours that you might have to use or missing days of work or things like that when you're going through menopause. And I was thinking about what are the numbers on maybe lost productivity to do with the rest of your life as a working woman which is your menstrual cycle because it happens every month and obviously it's hard to show up the same every day. And the numbers on lost productivity do... Due to menstruation are not so fiscal, but I found a British medical journal study from Mm -hmm. 2019 and it said it surveyed 30,000, well, 32,000 Dutch women and found on average per woman, nine days of lost productivity via absenteeism and also presenteeism, which is presenteeism is when you do not feel good, but you work, you study, whatever anyways, and you're just, you're, you're still lost productivity. So how do we deal with this? How do we combat this? Because it happens every single month. And I learned about cycle coaches, which are, yeah, they're life coaches who help you sort of, again, maximize and help you understand your hormonal cycle. So I talked to Renee Fick and she is a cycle coach and business consultant about how men and women are chemically different and so have different needs from the work that they do
9: men operate with mostly testosterone and it functions on a 24 hour rhythm. So a lot of the strategies and the ideas and the systems and things that are out there, especially around like habits and consistency and all those types of things is really geared towards that idea of showing up the same every single day and that you are the same every single day. And it works great for men and women just are very different for most people who are menstruating the first half of the month is predominantly estrogen. And then the second half is predominantly progesterone. Estrogen has a little bit more of that feel like testosterone does. So it makes you feel ready to go. It makes you feel excited. Your brain might feel sharp. You feel clear. You're ready to tackle those goals. And then progesterone kicks in. And I kind of describe it as like your inner time of the month. It's like the time where you're like, I don't want to people anymore. I just want to be in my house, maybe I'll clean out my entire kitchen refrigerator and clean it from top to bottom and clean, you know, be really productive in some ways, but make me get out there and do big things in public or with people or whatever. Like, I just don't want to do it. They're very different in the way that people feel throughout the month. So where you are on day seven of your cycle, your hormones are different than on day 14, then day 21, and day 28. Like, literally, there's not a single day in this whole month that women feel the same way. I break it down into four phases. There's the menstrual phase, which I call the recharge phase, which is really, that's what it's geared towards is how can we focus on recharging? As soon as that estrogen picks up, you hit your follicular phase, which I like to call the accelerate phase because that's what it feels like. You're going to like hit the ground running and get big things up off the ground to get things moving. You might feel really great about starting a new diet plan or a workout plan or a new project at work or whatever that might be. At the height of your estrogen is when ovulation happens. I call it the connect phase. Connect with other people to have those relationships with other people. Give big presentations, give big presentations, Ask for a raise at work, any of those things that require you to be able to communicate very well. And then, as that estrogen dips off and progesterone kicks in, that would be your luteal phase. And I like to describe it as the reflect phase. All of those heavy emotions and feelings and things that come up, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of doubt. A lot of the clients I work with, they'll often say, like, that's the time when they want to burn their business down because they're just like, (laughs) I can't do this. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm failing in every way, you know? And it really is just part of the hormones that come up at that time of the month and so it's a really great time to process and let go of anything that you need to process and reflect back and make sure your priorities are all in straight and so when you start to look at the whole cycle and the whole all four phases together it's really what helps women feel balanced you're making sure you're taking care of yourself you're doing all of those different things it's just not doing all of them in the same day the idea that
8: when it's convenient for some folks to be like, it's just your hormones and you're just on your cycle as a as a, as a sort of denigrating thing. And then uh, just using that and empowering to yourself to like pick yourself up and, and, and maximize that. I think that's awesome. So like kudos, basically, yeah. in a roundabout way.
9: Yeah. Each part of our cycle really does have a powerful, like I call them superpowers. Once I started really leaning into it and started embracing it, I look at each one of those different phases as really incredibly valuable. There's not one that's more or better than the other. They all are needed. And then all of them contribute something to my life. That's the lens in which I hope I can help other women start to see I hope my daughter, you know, and my daughters that are growing up, like I hope they begin to see their bodies in that way. And that it's not the thing that we have to be ashamed of.
8: You know, just listening, you know, I learned uh-huh. a lot. You know what I mean? <laughs> I learned a lot from her too, actually. So yeah, it's your menstrual phase is the is the very beginning. It's the first one you're trying to recharge. There's not a lot of energy to go around, and then you have your follicular phase, and then you ovulate, and then you're in your luteal phase, and uh, and then you're back to your menstrual phase again. It's just. Uh, it's predictable, I suppose, and everyone's kind of goes different and lasts for different uh, f- different lengths of time. But I'm going to take some of that, and I'm going to try to maximize my life, so I'm not so presentee <laughs> presenteeisming.
3: Well, you know,
1: it's it's interesting. We've talked about this before that you know, government uh, and uh, private sector as well. It's all probably been run by men, mm-hmm, set right? up by men on yep. their 24-hour cycle. Yeah, and it's and so we're so many things in society now we're reevaluating, looking at it differently, yeah. and saying, "Hang." on here there's different ways to look at this stuff it's all yeah. all the government policies that we look at and and a lot of that just comes back to yeah we, we've been running the world for a long time yeah we haven't looked at let's this mix stuff mix it up let's look at some stuff it, it's part <laughs> it's true though it, it's that's that's yeah. a big part of it i just listened to this report i was learning a lot of things <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's what i'm here for Jazz. that's right thank you so much thank you as we continue with our series, The Next Million. The series uh, runs every Tuesday and Thursdays at 4 p.m. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million people, and it's expected, it'll hit 3.8 million by 2050. Now, on Tuesday, we looked at commuting in Metro Vancouver in 2050 and how we need to build our neighbourhoods a little differently. Well, today I want to look at moving goods in our region. For a long time, trucking has been a booming industry. It is considered to be the backbone of Canada's economy. It is true that the economy relies massively on transporting goods across the nation and, of course, uh, throughout Metro. Vancouver as well. And from dealing with the congestion on our roads, the push for faster and faster delivery times, the societal demand for a reduction in greenhouse gases, and an industry-wide push for greater safety and prevention of accidents, uh, there is a lot of challenges ahead for trucking as well. Uh, the future of trucking industry itself is a hot topic uh, as it goes through significant changes. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the trucking industry and moving goods throughout Metro Vancouver today, and most importantly in 2050, is Dave Earl, who is the President and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Dave welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Lots to talk about here. Um, How much change are you seeing in your industry presently?
7: Oh, Jazz, it's a really exciting time because really that's all we have is change. Uh, When we look at the technological changes that are coming with alternate fuels, when we look at the efficiencies that are coming in terms of logistics planning, Mm -hmm. uh, when we look at infrastructure challenges, when we look at labor challenges, there's so much opportunity in the industry. It's just a great time to be involved. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about about um, a topic that I think a lot of folks have
1: heard s- uh, some information on, and that's, of course, uh, uh, driverless trucks, autonomous trucks, whatever we should call them. The first autonomous truck delivery, to my understanding, was ba- way back in 2016, and I think it was that time Budweiser moved 2,000 cases of uh, Bud Beer from Fort Collins, uh, Collins Colorado, to Colorado Springs, and I think it was about a 200-kilometer trip at that time. Uh, Where are we in in regards to autonomous trucks? How real is that technology, and how real and practical is it in
7: today's society? Well, more real than it was in 2016, but we're still quite a ways away from it. Hmm. Where we see it happening, uh, particularly in the United States, is in the south uh, of the country, uh, simply because better weather conditions, uh, you know, better infrastructure, and some of these vehicles run point to point between terminals, so they're on interstate highways. Uh, in Canada, we are seeing it. It's real. Uh, we saw a pilot project in October of last year with a half a dozen smaller uh, cube vans, uh moving on automated routes through Mississauga. Mm. Um, So the pilots are happening. It's early, early days. There's lots of technical uh, issues to overcome and uh, legal issues to overcome. Um, But it's coming one day, Jess. So do you see
1: uh, autonomous vehicles operating in rainy Vancouver in January or
7: uh, in snow in Calgary? Well, if you're asking me um, when, I don't know. Mm. Um, If you're asking me to bet against technology, well, I'll, I'll take your money. Um, eventually, yes, it'll, it'll happen. Uh, eventually, our technology will get us to where uh, that point is because there's a whole bunch of good reasons to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're still a long ways off.
1: And, and is it going to be, as you see the smaller cube vans in a Metro Vancouver in 2050?
7: Or do you see the big rigs one day being oh, as well? everything. And it's going to be really interesting to see what goes first. Um, You know, there's live conversations saying, does it make sense to move between bonded facilities cross border? Um, Because the risk there is we know the the cargo, we know the trailer, we know the truck, we don't know the driver. Hmm. So, you know, there's a security issue there that, that could be solved. Are we going to see it with small vehicles locally? Are we going to see it with large vehicles long distance? It's just a question of the pilots that we're going to see and what we're going to learn. Hmm. Um, let's touch on just Metro
1: Vancouver for a second. A mm-hmm. uh, fast-growing region, as I said, we're adding another million people. Uh, municipalities of different sizes. you got giant communities like Vancouver and Surrey, and you've got smaller communities like New Westminster and Port Coquitlam. Uh, you, uh, your, your industry has to navigate through all of it, whether you're delivering groceries or other goods and services. Like just getting around the city has got to be tough. I know it's tough because I commute every day. Give me a sense of what it is like for your in your industry today and what do you think twenty fifty looks like for you?
7: Well, it's a really interesting question, Jazz. One of the things that uh, many people aren't aware is TransLink actually has responsibility for the major road network. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is to make sure that we have truck routes that are available for use uh, and that they're safe and, and fluid to use. Uh, right now, like everybody, uh, our members, our drivers uh, suffer in traffic. They suffer in congestion. And when we look at the infrastructure that exists, uh, we're operating in a massive, massive infrastructure deficit. Uh, for many, many decades, we coasted. We just didn't build out what we needed to build out. And now we're facing that that problem. Um, lots of work happening. We're very excited to see government moving on the Highway 1 uh, Fraser Valley projects. Um, we've actually said to them very clearly, uh, do it all at once. Get it done. Don't drag it out over 10 years. Just let's get this built and let's get it moving. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't build infrastructure for rush hour. You build infrastructure to move goods. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try and do. Yeah. Um- But when I look at, you know, even a parking spot
1: for Mm -hmm. for a commuter, they're getting smaller and smaller, Mm -hmm. right? They want to encourage us to get out of our car, to release different types of uh, commuting. Perhaps you're walking, perhaps you're cycling, uh, perhaps you're taking transit or a bus, or a little of all of it. Uh, They're not necessarily thinking, how does an 18-wheeler navigate our streets? Right. Oh, absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about mm-hmm. the city and what you think it needs to do in regards to, just, and it'd be selfish for a moment, what what you think your industry <laughs> requires just to navigate through yeah. this city. Because everything is getting smaller and tighter. And it, I don't think thinking of the trucking industry is the first priority for some of the elected officials
7: out there. Oh, and it's... It- It falls off the radar, Jess, because, again, we're talking about active transportation and moving people, and we forget that you and I and everybody who lives here, uh, the technical term is stuff. We need stuff. You know, we need to get that and we need to be able to move through it. Uh, We work with the cities all through the Lower Mainland regularly and we meet with them about road configurations. There are different engineering standards that we work with. Uh, We meet regularly with Ministry of Transportation and Highways to make sure that when they're designing new infrastructure, it actually takes into account current vehicles and vehicles that are coming. Uh, Sometimes that work goes really smoothly. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, When you think about those lovely roundabouts that we see with public art in the middle and everything else, it's great. Um, Sometimes it makes those intersections inaccessible for larger vehicles. Uh, And that's those conversations that we always have with municipalities to say, hold it. Uh, Let's make sure that the goods that you and I rely on can actually get to where they need to be.
1: We are speaking to Dave Earle. He's the president and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. We were talking a little bit about uh, technology and its impact on trucking, especially autonomous uh, trucks that we've been talking about, and also just, uh, you know, finding industrial space in the city as well. Uh, give me a call in the open line. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions for uh, Dave. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to Natasha in Richmond. Hi, Natasha. Yes, hi. Good
10: afternoon, all of you. Um, so, a couple of points. Uh, I share the road with trucks. And so on. In the morning, I'm come from Richmond on Seaston Highway, and um, basically Seaston Highway, they would li- it's so jam packed, as everybody knows. Uh, but yet they are going to be building a bicycle lane on that two lane road, and many many calls have gone to Richmond City Hall by me, and but there is no avail to that. To take something that you know you've made a mistake. Our infrastructure is a D minus, and to add a bike lane where there's trucks, you will not believe it. They're, the, the trucks right now, they don't, you know, they're big. Yeah. So I really feel for them. Secondly, I was just wondering, all these bridges that we have that we're not going to be using supposedly at some point, uh, the Port Murty, uh, the Portman Bridge, maybe the tunnel one day in uh, some near very long future, but why not make that into one route where it's just the trucking or commercial things can go or even the bike lanes for that matter. Natasha thank that's you for your call point.
1: appreciate it um I think repurposing uh, in uh, you know some of this older infrastructure is great but although the tunnel is post 60 years and the patello is even older than that uh I, I think the core issue really is building infrastructure that's actually mm-hmm. going to help move goods and services right uh especially especially Dave when we're talking about even just where we are in Metro Vancouver. And Natasha is calling there from Richmond. You know, when I look at the lower mainland today, you know, you've got the port in Vancouver, you've got uh, Neptune over in North Shore, Mm -hmm. you've got those traditional areas that, that have built Metro Vancouver. But when I look at your industry now and look at growth, we can't afford to put, the infrastructure there for the trucking industry alone, I mean, Twoson and the port there seems like the the place. Uh, Campbell Heights in Surrey is another place. I mean, is that sort of where we're heading? It's all south
7: of the phrase in regards to where the goods and services, or at least we're going to be delivered to warehouses for your industry? Well, it is, Jazz. And one of the interesting things when we look at this is what does congestion mean for our industry? Uh, In recent years, we've had two very large members actually move out of Richmond and move to the Fraser Valley because a lot of the routes, the long-distance routes and distribution routes that we run are to Calgary and Edmonton. It's not possible to run from Richmond to Calgary Nine days out of ten, in the hours that are allotted, because of, of congestion,
1: not at Five Road and Steveston, I'll tell you, you that you much. You right just by the tower. can't, yeah,
7: you know. So we've seen movements out the valley. Well, what that does is it puts more local traffic between the valley and where people live. So mm-hmm. it's when we talk about building infrastructure, it's critical that we're building it to move goods. It's not just people. It's not just cars. Uh, it's goods as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to Ron in New Westminster. Hi, Ron.
3: Yeah, hello, Jazz. Um, one of the things I seem to have noticed um, in the last few years uh, for our urban deliveries, and especially the ones I notice are our large uh, food deliveries to our fast food restaurants, uh, where they used to use smaller one-ton to maybe five-ton cube vans, and you know they would have to make multiple stops and reload, I guess. Now they load everything on a huge uh, semi-trailer, and uh, that poor truck driver, he has to, like, I watched the one in New Westminster here. The guy comes in with a big 18-wheeler, has to block the entire road, and they have to try to back up into this narrow parking lot, missing all the cars, watching out for pedestrians behind them, which, you know, and pedestrians will walk right behind them as he's trying to back up. And the guy's a great driver. But I'm just thinking, like, it's, uh, it seems to be a change in the logistics of those type of deliveries where they're instead of going with a fleet of smaller trucks, they load one big semi up and the guy's gone for the day. Thanks for your call, Ron. I
1: appreciate it. Is that just a push for faster and faster deliveries with, you carry yeah. more of it for the day. Is that part more, of the efficiency? more and
7: more efficiency jazz? So when you think about it, if we're talking about moving people, yeah. it's better to move more people on a big bus than people in single cars. It's the same principle. Uh, the more freight you can move at once, the more efficient it is. Yeah. Uh, and that's just a basic principle of logistics. Speaking of truck drivers, uh, we've talked about autonomous, uh, vehicles
1: and trucks. Uh, you you have a lot of older drivers in your industry, just like a lot of industries mm-hmm. that baby borns are retiring. And I get them calling uh, this show all the time. Uh, are
7: we going to have enough uh, truck drivers? Because uh, you still need people in this industry. Oh, my gosh, Jazz. We're going to need more people for the foreseeable future. I mean, as much as we talk about autonomous stuff, that's a ways away. And I mean, many, many, many years away. Um, So we need more people. We've always needed more people. We're like every industry, you know, we we need more people. Um, One of the things that's a misconception is not every driver is on the road for a week at a time driving from here to Cleveland. Um, About 20% of the fleet, you're home every night, and that's the big stuff. The smaller vehicles, most of them are home every night. So there's lots of careers in trucking that allow Hmm. for a – Really good work-life balance, uh, and then if you really want to make some very good money, um, do some long-haul team driving. Uh, you'll be very, very pleasantly surprised when you <laughs> dig into how much you can make doing that.
1: I bet. All right, we got a, about a minute and a half left. Uh, let's go to uh, Glenn in Langley. Hi, Glenn.
7: Hello
0: there.
1: What's uh, on your mind?
0: You know, it's gridlock is going to be the thing when when it takes you. You you come across the border at uh, Peace Arch. And it takes you seven and a half hours to make it to Lonsdale. And that's every day, all day long. Then everybody's going to go, whoa, you think it's expensive now? Just wait. It's going to be real expensive for goods and services
1: Glenn, thank you for your call. I mean, it is, I mean, we really forget about just trucking education. We've got to make some tough choices in this region pretty quick in regards to, we're inviting all these folks, we're growing another million coming. Mm-hmm. And Glenn raises a very good point seven hours to the North Shore if you're coming through the border. I mean, that is a lot of time. It's all going to come down to what you pay as a customer. Uh, we
7: have to make some tough choices in regards to just moving goods and services. We really do, Jazz. And I mean, one of the things to remember is there is no such thing as free shipping it's all built into the price everything you and i buy yeah it has shipping costs built in and so yeah it's a major issue that we're really going to have to grapple with and keep our eyes on yeah dave thanks for your time anytime glad to be here
1: a year from now, today, uh, we'll all be at the polls. It'll be election day in Vancouver. That's right. We're a year away from the next provincial election. And today, the Angus Reid uh, announced, uh, released a new poll. And more than 40% of those surveyed intend to vote for the B.C. New Democratic Party in next year's election. Now, the interesting part isn't number one. It's actually two and three. The B.C. Conservatives are now running in third spot, just behind the B.C. United, with 21 and 22% each for the party. Uh, that is not something anybody expected a couple of years ago, uh, but certainly the political landscape is changing very quickly here in British Columbia. And two men here are going to try to explain it to me Keith Baldrige, of course, is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, and Richard Dussman is Global BC's Legislative Reporter. Keith, Richard, welcome.
4: Hi,
1: thanks, uh, uh, All right, let's, uh, Keith, let me go to you first and foremost. This new poll from the Angus Reid Institute, what do you make of it?
4: Well, I think it's important to realize this is like the fourth or fifth consecutive poll in the last few months that basically have all the same results, which is the NDPs in this very lofty era and somewhere in the 40% uh, decided vote level and then you've got the other two parties, the BC United Party and now the fledgling um bc conservative party of uh, fighting it out for a very distant second place and this is not just a one snapshot this has been going this pattern has been there for a few months now. before people say oh it's just pollsters you can't trust them look at what happened in 2013 i remind people that pollsters have got their act together in the last decade they called the Alberta election bang on. They called the Manitoba election bang on. The last few federal elections have been exactly correct, as have the BC elections calls by pollsters. So it'd be foolish for detractors of, um, of people don't like these numbers to say, "Oh, it's just a poll." This shows, I think some very serious problems for the anti-NDP vote is that it is split, it's weak, it's not very strongly centered, and the NDP seems to have a bit of a Teflon quality to it because this poll, again, is just the latest in and in what's been going on for a couple of years now is that people cite the top three issues, cost of living, health care, and housing, and they give the NDP failing grades, big failing grades on all three. They're handling of all three, yet it doesn't move the needle when it comes to voter intent. And that's got to be very frustrating for the opposition.
0: Uh,
1: Richard, uh, in, in this case, um, when you have the B.C. Conservatives and um, uh, B.C. United neck and neck, are we on the verge of the free enterprise movement just imploding? Or do you think this is, look, it's in between election days. There's lots of time for B.C. United to, to get back. Or do you think right now they should be worried?
6: There is some voter confusion here, Jazz. What's unclear is how much and whether the trend lines will continue to change. People understand what conservative means, and Pierre Polyev is soaring in the polls, and that has a runoff effect here for the BC conservatives. But BC United has a lot of work to do to explain to people who they are, what they stand for, develop that brand, and then sell people on the idea that they are the one that can fix these problems. We know that they're worried. Kevin Falcon publicly talks about how, you know, the Conservatives are a fad, uh, they, voters are confused, but behind the scenes, our understanding is they are struggling to raise money, uh, they are struggling uh, to convince candidates, to run for them next year, although they have named some candidates. They're still having a hard time filling the gap on some of these swing riding. So it's going to be a serious uphill battle for BC United as Kevin Falcon tries to mount this charge uh, over the next year,
1: uh, Keith. In regards to what uh, Richard is saying, now I remember when I worked for the LNG industry, and and you know we when I was there, that you know I was I had responsible for six figure ad buys, and in one case a seven figure ad buy, uh, province wide, and you know that took first of all polling and research to decide what your messaging was going to be like. So that takes time and money, but more importantly, you have time, and we're a year away from an election. Number one, uh, and, and number two, uh, advertising and you know brand management and building a brand takes money as well. Do they have that time to, to to remind people that, look, they used to be the BC Liberals, they're now BC United? Do you think they have the time and the money to actually accomplish sort of this um, brand management and brand change?
4: Well, they don't have a year because a year is when the next election will be. The campaign begins 11 months from now. Uh, That's if the election is actually in the fall, not the spring. (laughs) And it takes, as you know, it takes time to rebrand something, particularly when you jettison the old brand in its entirety. So... The classic business model is to rebrand by hanging on to the old brand, attach it to the new brand, and get that 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 impression in front of people, your customers, that the the new brand is basically the old brand with a new name. And what the V.C. United has done is completely gotten rid of the old brand, which served them well, winning them a number of elections, and as if it it never existed, and then put this new brand in place. Eleven months from now is when the campaign begins. I don't think they've got 11 months to do this. I think it's going to take longer than that to really have an effective rent. Kevin Falcon keeps saying there's going to be a big ad campaign. Just you wait. There's been no evidence that's happening. And as Richard just said, they are having trouble raising money. I think a lot of the business community is taking a look right now and saying, you know what, it looks like it's pretty good odds that David Eby and his, uh, his party is going to remain the government for four more years, so what is the point in us writing a check or even helping, albeit by smaller amounts, because the rules have changed, by giving you guys money? And it seems that the business community increasingly may be betting on David Eby rather than on Kevin Falcon and John Rustad, and that, again, bad news for the opposition.
1: We are speaking to Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman from Global Television's Victoria Bureau. We're talking about a new poll from the Angus Reid Institute that puts the NDP at 40% support. Uh, The Conservatives are running, the BC Conservatives are running third at uh, 21% and BC United uh, is at 22%. So uh, certainly neck and neck for number two and Three, uh, Richard. Let me go to you for a second here. You know, we're in these situations. Obviously, the government pushes back on who they believe will be their main opponent heading into an election. In this case, if you're David E. B. and the NDP, do you spend time focusing on Kevin Falcon, or do you start now looking at uh, John Rustad as your main opponent?
6: Yeah, so you've seen some of these attacks on John Rustad and and how David Eby has described in the past. And I spoke to him this week. The full interview will air tomorrow on Focus BC. We talked about this issue that he has raised in terms of the culture wars and, as he described it, the race to the bottom. I think he is respectful of all his political opponents. But the reality is, Someone who is going to vote for the Conservative Party of BC is likely not considering the NDP, whereas somebody in suburban Vancouver who's considering BC United probably is also considering the BC NDP. So in that regard, he may see his chief opponent as Kevin Falcon and... BC United. So, I I think that's likely where he looks at it. There is some concern from the NDP about this emergence of populism, but when you're talking about these core issues of affordability, healthcare, public safety, his chief opponent continues to be BC United. But I think his his real chief opponent is in essence himself, right? He needs to prove to British Columbians that he can be premier on his own, not under the legacy of John Horgan. And it's convincing voters of that that will be his test for the election rather than being better than John Rustad, or or Kevin Salkin. Keith, uh, in
1: regards to um, what Richard is saying, uh, but also in regards to what the the BC Conservatives and where they're at, um, you know, uh, David Eby does have to prove he's his own man, he's got his own policies. um, But at the same time, you know, I'm sure he would love the help from Conservatives to siphon off some of those BC United votes. Do you expect the Conservatives to have a full slate of candidates or is it going to be focused on 10 or 15 ridings?
4: Well, it's going to be 93 ridings next time, which is a lot. That's a lot of candidate recruitment. I mean, it is hard even for the existing parties to find 93 existing uh, credible candidates because we're adding six seats. So I don't really expect other conservatives to have a full slate. But, you know, Rustad told me some months ago, and this is before they surged in the polls, he thought they'd be competitive and perhaps winning in 15 ridings. And I don't, you know... Will they run a candidate in Vancouver Kingsway or Vancouver Mount Pleasant? I don't see what the point of that is, quite frankly. I mean, those are NDP heartlands or uh, even in Kelowna, which is, you know, a very traditional stronghold for BC United or their predecessors, the Liberals or the Socrates. But I don't think he has to run a full slate to have a, a huge impact on the campaign. Where he'll be running candidates are in seats where he thinks he can win. And those are the seats that the BC United currently hold. I don't think he thinks he can pick up a bunch of NDP seats. I think he thinks he can pick up some BC United seats because they're fighting over the same pool of voters, by and large. And all it takes is a bit of a split, and that would either give the NDP the riding or uh, allow it to tilt into the um, the conservative uh, wind column. And you know, your question, Richard, is very interesting because I've had just, just beginning is the debate within the NDP – uh, higher ups about exactly this point. At what point do we train our focus on the BC Conservatives and not so much the BC United? One thing they're concerned about. One of the lessons from the 1991 election is public opinion moved very quickly. Uh, the the non NDP vote moved very quickly from one party to another party in an election campaign, away from the Social Credit Party to the BC Liberal Party. You know, hundreds of thousands of people literally in a space of a few weeks switched their votes. Now we're a year out, potentially, so it's a longer time frame. But they're going to keep an eye on the polls. And if the Conservatives start to out-distance themselves from the the BC United Party, if we get to a a 30% to 20% split with the Conservatives, then the NDP, I think, will train their sights on the Conservatives and start not ignore the BC United, but not make them their number one priority when it comes to uh, framing their opponents. Keith, you raise
1: a very good point, and Richard, you've mentioned it as well that people aren't generally happy with the NDP's performance when it comes to some of these core issues of health care. Uh, cost of living and housing affordability. In fact, one would argue the fact that they're not happy, they're probably looking for an alternative, but they don't see one in this particular point. Um, Moving forward, if that's the case, and these polling numbers hold to the next, Provincial election, you know the, the the math in this province has always been the federal liberals and federal conservatives have to be together, and they when they form a coalition they win generally two thirds out of the time. That's generally been the math in the last sixty sixty five years in this in this province. Now you know we have polarization those types of things, um, but let's just say they it stays. Uh, how do you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? If the NDP win the next election, how do you put together that free enterprise coalition again? Because it doesn't seem like it's ha- going to happen anytime soon.
6: Well, yeah, both sides. A charismatic, a charismatic radio host, maybe. <laughs> Keep, think? Is that, is <laughs> that the <thinking? laughs> You know one.
4: I'm trying to think of one. Huh. Nothing,
1: <laughs> here, <folks. laughs> Nothing here, folks. Nothing here. Well, you
4: wrong. know, it's gonna, it's gonna have to someone. A coalition, by its definition, means ignoring the extremes. Yeah. Ignoring the fringes. It has to tack to, towards the middle, r- middle right, not the middle left, but the middle right, the centrist right. And Rustad is not there. The conservatives are attacking hard right. They're following Pierre, they're following Mad Max Bernier in the People's Party lead here, um, but that is taking enough votes potentially away from United to fracture that coalition. So I'm not sure there is a recipe to put it back together. Our demographics are changing so mm-hmm. fast. The NDP is a coalition of sorts. It's unionists. It's environmentalists. It's social activists. There's always the potential that that coalition could break apart in the years ahead. So I think we're in for some very rocky times right around the world, in the United States, in Europe, and in B.C., and federally when it comes to electoral politics. There seems to be some tectonic plates shifting out there, the likes we haven't seen in generations.
1: Yeah, Keith, Richard, thanks for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful evening.
4: Take care. Yeah,
6: thanks, Seth. You too.
1: I'm sure many of you uh, sometime in your life have uh, gone out and applied for a job and if an employer is interested, they sort of ask you for your salary range. Well, starting November 1st, employers across BC will be forced to include wages or expected salary ranges in job postings. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this new uh, change in legislation is Jeff Mason. He's an employment and human rights lawyer at Miller Thompson LLP. Jeff, thank you for joining us today.
5: Thanks for having me, Jazz. Great to be back.
1: Yeah, it's been a while. Good to chat with you. Uh, walk me through this. Why uh, will employers be forced to do this? What's, what is the reasoning behind government's decision to move forward with this?
5: Yeah. So, so the the job posting requirements coming out of the Pay Transparency Act are are really focused on closing the pay gap, uh, specifically the, the gender pay gap. But there's um, uh, there's there's pay gaps in Canada and and elsewhere, um, besides just on the basis of gender. I think racialized Canadians with university education make about eighty seven cents for every dollar uh, a white peer does. Uh, racialized women earn, I believe, fifty nine cents for every dollar that a, a, a non racialized man earns. So that that pay gap is what this the Pay Transparency Act is is focused on trying to close. With the the idea being that if employers are required to uh, disclose the expected salary or salary range for a particular position at the time they're posting it, that uh, they don't have the opportunity to sort of adjust that after the, the gender or ethnicity or whatever of the actual candidate is known. So that's that's the theory behind the the job posting requirements in the Pay Transparency Act.
1: So what employers are impacted here by this provincial legislation? Some industries are regulated uh, federally. I mean, is it going to be all employers then?
5: So this would apply to any BC employer uh, subject to provincial jurisdiction. So you're you're right, there are some employers who operate in BC who are subject to federal jurisdiction. Um, I'll I'll spare you the the long-winded jurisdictional analysis, but uh, if if you are in a federally regulated industry, this isn't going to apply to you. But interestingly, it, it would apply to employers who are physically located in B.C., but it would also extend to employers uh, who are operating outside of B.C., who uh, post jobs available to B.C., uh, to employees working in B.C.
1: So if you're a short-order cook uh, or you're planning to be a short-order cook uh, and there was a job in the paper or uh, on, on a, um, a job site somewhere, they would have to give you a range. If there's a job at a trucking company, they would have to give you a range. In our industry, we're regulated federally, uh, and I'm just using this as an example. If we were to post something for a producer position, let's say, uh, you wouldn't have to put the out range and because it's federally regulated broadcasting is federally regulated
5: that's correct yeah i believe that there is other pay transparency legislation at the federal level that's come in um i'm uh i'm not quite as familiar with that but I, i do know that the the obligations under the pay transparency act to um to post certain wage information in your job posting that would only apply to employers who are provincially regulated. That's correct.
1: And so it's a range you can put in or or are the rules pretty specific in regards to how uh, you address the issue of what you're offering? Like, can you just say, you know, uh, we'll pay you $17 or higher or whatever it may be, or or is there a certain way you have to sort of uh, present the
5: wage range? Yeah. So so the way the act is, is currently framed, um, employers have the option of either disclosing the actual expected salary for the position or the expected salary range. I, I have an inkling of, of what most employers are going to choose to do just to give themselves flexibility. So I, I think ultimately that's, that's going to lead to employers posting a salary range. I think one of the major inadequacies of, of the Pay Transparency Act, though, is that there's not really much in the way of restrictions on what that range can be. All the act says is that the range has to reflect the the expected salary range of the of the position. So I anticipate there's going to be some sort of requirement that the range has to represent sort of a, a good faith expectation of what the the salary for the position is. But ultimately, I mean, the, the, the gender pay gap in B.C. Uh-huh. Uh, currently is, is 17%. I think in, in 2018, it was 19%. So we're, we're moving in the right direction. But so long as the wage range that you're allowed to post in job postings can be greater than the, uh, the, the pay gap, um, it's in my view, not really going to do a whole lot to move the needle on the on closing the pay gap because employers will still be able to um, discriminate on the basis of wages um, within the, the salary range that they post in their job posting.
1: So you think that moving forward, the, the, the salary range should be quite specific or tightened significantly?
5: I think that there should be some some restrictions on that um, or at least some, some requirements to sort of specify exactly uh the uh, the how long the range can be um now there's a lot of components to the pay transparency act aside from just the job posting requirements in fact a a couple of the obligations coming out of the act on employers are already in force um one of the obligations coming out of the pay transparency act that is not yet in force is a uh a uh, pay information reporting requirement. Um, so we're we're still waiting on the province to explain exactly what the sort of information, the, the pay-related information, employers are going to be required to collect and, and and publish. But it is going to be information that is focused on identifying any. Uh, pay discrepancies on the basis of gender or other personal characteristics. And I think that's going to probably be the more effective tool.
1: And are, are there provinces doing this? And, and if they are, uh, have they been successful in regards to reducing that uh, uh, gender pay gap?
5: Uh, I, I, I believe Ontario has uh, has adopted similar legislation. i, I, I uh, you, forgive me, I can't uh, confirm right now if it's in force already. Um, mm-hmm. But I believe that, that that legislation is similar to what's been adopted in New York um, and some other jurisdictions uh, in the United States. Um, this is this this sort of legislation in Canada, at least, is is fairly new. So I don't think we've had enough time to really uh, assess the the success or failings of it. Um, and I think that probably says as much about the. Uh, how complicated and deep-seated the the gender pay gap issue is than it does about any of the legislation. It's just not an issue that any piece of legislation is going to be able to fix overnight. But mm-hmm. um, I think the results have been have been promising. But uh, we're not quite at the point where we can say whether it's been you know really truly effective.
1: Jeff, thank you for your time today. Really
5: appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me, Jeff.
1: Earlier uh, this week, or I guess yesterday actually, Vancouver City Council approved a staff recommendation uh, to seek $3.8 million from the BC government to support ongoing increased washroom access uh, in the downtown east side. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this issue is Sarah Kirby Young, an ABC Vancouver City Councillor. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Bring me back. Hey, not a problem. Uh, First and foremost, walk me through the program itself. and it's been up and running for a little while uh, in the downtown east side. Uh, Give me a sense of how important it is uh, in regards to having um, the dollars and what they've so far been able to prove in regards to increased washroom access.
0: Uh, Well, it's critically important. You're really talking about human dignity, and we really saw the impact of this play out um, to make it – very um, real for people during the pandemic and if you think about um, when we were all under lockdown we realized how much we relied on washrooms that were in commercial facilities so you could stop in a coffee shop um, or if you're you know you're out in an office building and when <coughs> sorry excuse me when everything shut down
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, what we saw was that playing out on the streets from uh, people that were the most vulnerable that didn't necessarily have access to those spaces anymore um, or typically didn't have the same access that other folks do um, and so the program really, Um, ramped up uh, during the pandemic. And it was the installation of things like washroom trailers in partnership with nonprofits in the downtown east side, um, particularly focused in that neighborhood um, where there's a lot of vulnerable people who either have precarious housing or don't have housing at all. Um, And the biggest issue is not um, providing washroom facilities, it's the staffing and cost of maintaining them.
1: Mm -hmm. So uh, right now the staff, I think, was recommending that you seek the dollars from the provincial government. Are you quite confident you'll be able to get that money?
0: Uh, Yeah, there's a specific uh, program, uh, and they have been, I think, pretty responsive and supportive before, just like they provide us with funding uh, with respects to ramping up shelters when we get to the cold weather, um, and you'll see additional support coming there. Um, I think uh, the fact that we saw the homeless count come out recently um, and how significantly that has risen um, is a pretty compelling piece. And The impacts of homelessness and people on the street, um, it's very costly in terms of the lack of services and the dignity for people, but just also the dollars to maintain that. So, very hopeful that we will get that support. Yeah.
1: What do you say to the argument uh, that, look, we we put too many services down there, it gets entrenched in regards to services that we provide? Uh, and we don't see much in regards to a reduction of drug users and everything else. So much of it, we we build an industry or we build services around helping people, and I understand the reason for doing that, but we never seem to get to the bigger issue. We're just trying to reduce it and one day hopefully not to have those services there. What do you say to that argument? Some would argue that, look, providing more of these services just entrenches some of the problems in that neighbourhood.
0: You know, I actually agree wholeheartedly with that. I think that we have a huge gap because we've gotten into a space where we are just sustaining people but we're not moving them to better um and we see that where you know we have people celebrating uh it's great news that we're able to more successfully bring people back from overdoses and i said yes but more people are actually overdosing um and the residual impacts of that you see lasting brain damage um you see people that are increasingly getting disenfranchised from their families um they're not able to kind of function in society and so i do think that the focus is off there (coughs) sorry my voice seems to be cutting out today Um, But I think that with washrooms, that's a basic human um, kind of dignity and perspective. But in terms of the broader social issues that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. um, bringing somebody back to life is not giving them a life, Um, keeping people kettled together. We've seen and heard from a lot of folks that they would prefer to live outside of the downtown east side where they can be in a diverse um, and healthier community. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's time that we start asking those questions because it's clearly not getting
1: better. Yeah, I just had Cash Heat on uh, during the three o'clock hour, uh, and he uh, uh, has put together, put forward a motion for one of their committees in their community, advocating for secure care in regards to those who are dealing with, you know, acute drug addiction, critical mental illness challenges, in the homeless population. Uh, and overall, there's a lot of support from callers who think that's the right way to go. And I think it echoes what you've been saying as well. It's all well and good to. Deal with the issue, but we're not we're not moving forward. We're not moving the needle in regards to the city of Vancouver. We often talked about crime, uh, shoplifting, all those kind of things that uh, have really proliferated during. Uh, COVID. Do you think things are getting better in the city, or do you think it's still the status quo? I know you've been in, been elected for a year now as a as a majority with ABC, and and I don't expect you to solve all of society's ills here. But do you think things are getting better in this city, or do you think there's it, 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 we still need more work to do?
0: Um, I still think we have a lot to do. I don't think it's just Vancouver. We see these problems playing out in cities across the province. Um, I also sit on the Union BC Municipalities Board. Um, they had their annual conference recently and there was a motion passed with respects to um, and you've heard that in terms of keeping drug use away from sports fields um, going further than the province had, uh, which is schools and playgrounds, but sports fields in other areas, because we are seeing this spread out across our communities. And I think it's a downstream impact of the fact that we have had a really unbalanced approach and it has really just been about harm reduction, but it hasn't been about, like I said, getting people to better putting them into treatment looking at more diversified housing. Um, the downtown east side plan itself um, has people that have very, very uh, significant challenges all together in most communities. If you look around the city, um, the most successful ones are ones that are diverse and they're mixed in terms of income and background. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, we think that we have a different philosophy for the downtown east side. And I think that as a neighborhood, they deserve better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time and appreciate
0: it. No worries. Thanks for having me.